I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. Today we have a gentleman calling in from Canada. His name is Scott H. Young, and he is a author, programmer. He is an entrepreneur and has a new book out. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, it's great to be here. So, Scott, I saw programmer <laughs> yeah. in the title. Yeah. How do you translate programming to better learning well, in the business space? Yeah. So, I mean, my bio is constantly evolving, but uh, I put programmer in there because one of these projects I did was learning computer science and uh, learning uh, programming. And so this has been sort of something I've done in the background for, for some time. I wouldn't call myself as much a programmer today. I usually, I'm mostly writing, you know, uh, English as opposed to Java or Python, but I think it does influence how you think about things. I think once you learn programming, it kind of changes how you think about uh, learning other things, learning technology, learning other kinds of math and other tools and things like that. So the reason I mentioned that, yeah, it's kind of the, the same discovery I had because I have somewhat some quantum physics coming through and information mm -hmm. coming through um, all the time. And I'm on social media. We're a meta media partner uh, and just signed a deal with TikTok to be a first major U.S. agency with TikTok. And when you start to understand percentages uh, related to human behavior, and thought processes. Is that something that you kind of gave you insight to? I think honestly, the so to sort of go back with like computer science, uh, programming can be seen as a kind of uh, just, you know, writing software, making apps or video games or spreadsheets or, or what have you. But it's also a way of thinking about processes. And in, in many ways, the ways we think about things are a kind of process. And so uh, cognitive psychology, which is yeah, I would say probably the dominant branch for understanding how the mind works is very much grounded in this sort of computer metaphor, this metaphor of like, what is the what is the algorithm that the brain's running? And so I would say more recently where I've spent more time looking into the science of learning and researching cognitive science for things like my book, um, I think the having the programming background, having the kind of understanding of things like algorithms and various concepts uh, does directly apply. There's a lot of overlap in sort of how how we think and how computers think, which are obviously very different, but um, there's some similar language just in, you know, if you know physics, then it also helps you understand things in biological systems, even though they're not the same as cars or jet engines, for instance. Yeah, because you when you understand human behavior mm -hmm. and you understand that social media programming technology, really, when you think about it, was patterned off the sensitivities uh, of humans. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the word computer itself comes back to when there were actual people who would do the calculations by hand. And so the first computers was a job title. It was something a person did. It wasn't a machine. And so I think that, you know, just shows the kind of intricate linkages that go back in time with, uh, with these concepts. A lot of this technology is down the road. I think people don't think about those things. And I think, you know, if people could open up more and understand that, more maybe they wouldn't be scared of technology so when you talk about better learning and so mm -hmm. forth what what is your initiative and in, in, and where does this passion of writing this book yeah. come from 
Well, I mean, this is kind of what I've spent the last 15 or so years of my life uh, working toward was uh, what's the what's the best way to learn things? How do you learn difficult skills and, and concepts? And I think there's been a real passion for me of like taking apart skills like languages or programming like we were talking about or artistic skills or various things. And what is a good way to practice that? What is a good way to study that? And uh, along the way, I think even more recently, I've been kind of trying to keep up with a lot more of the scientific literature because we have, you know, 150 years of psychology drawing upon, you know, studies of like how people learn doing different kinds of practice and some things work better than others. And so uh, distilling that and, and thinking about that has been, I would say, the, the big project of, of my life. And so I think that learning and wanting to learn better is, I don't know, it's, it's like a fish in water. It's a little bit hard for me to describe why I'm, I'm interested in it because I just take for granted that, you know, wouldn't you want to learn better? Wouldn't you want to speak more languages, remember things better, understand things better, learn more difficult concepts with, with greater ease? I think this is just such a fundamental bottleneck in the human experience. The human experience is a big word. I always talk about that and, <laughs> yeah. you know, relates to what I said a few minutes ago about emulating computers and, and social mm -hmm. media and everything, emulating uh, human beings because that's where they got their data from. And you said distilling science. Yeah. You know, I've kind of been on this, this kick of science and because I've talked to a lot of intellectual people and, and a lot of mm -hmm. spaces and I always think a lot of these scientists have blinders on. When you distill science, what do you mean by that? Because a lot of people don't realize that studies in science are a one lane highway, you know, and I think it takes just a read on you. I think it takes yeah. someone like me and you to take those pieces you know, if you have one piece over here in one lane and one piece over here in another lane, putting those together to make them work because science is not going to do that for you. What is your breakdown yeah. of that thought process? Well, I, I would say I'm I'm somewhat eclectic in that I think there are definitely people who, you know, you go and you get your PhD and you specialize in some little tiny patch of the intellectual space and you do very, very, very tightly controlled studies and you can, you know, spend 10 years working on something like we found effect X and then you write a book about effect X and it gets published somewhere and people talk about effect X. Whereas I tend to be someone who I, I try to read as much as possible. And I, I try to be someone who I'm looking for the big picture. And I mean, this is hard to get because, you know, you'll have some group of scientists that do some research and they find effect X and then some other people doing something a little different that seems like it should be effect X and it's not X. And so I, this is difficult to do. And I think it's hard. And so for me, I try to balance it also with kind of practical application. So on my own kind of uh, digital resume, if it were, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time reading research, trying to understand, you know, why do people think the way they do about uh, about these topics? But then also, again, the practical application of, you know, it, well, if you go out and try it, does it work? Or is it something that like, well, maybe you can find that in an experiment, but it's kind of finicky versus, you know, if you actually do this, it works better than other things and, and to try to synthesize those two perspectives. When you talk about this book, Ultra mm -hmm. Learning, Walk through the book a little bit. What are the, the pocket narratives that is going to teach us something 
different? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of the book was that I encountered maybe about, again, starting about 15, 20 years ago, these people who would do these like really incredible learning projects. So people who would like teach themselves kind of really complicated, difficult skills on their own, sort of in kind of outside the education system. And I was very curious about these people and how they worked and how they thought. And, you know, could we extract some lessons from that? And so I am also sort of my own guinea pig. So I did some of these projects myself. Uh, one project I did, um, you know, we kind of alluded to in the beginning was this project called the MIT Challenge, which was trying to learn MIT's computer science program. Um, and they post a lot of their material online for free. And so I wanted to see whether you could take kind of an equivalent to what an MIT student might learn through their classwork without actually going to MIT and paying MIT hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and whatnot. And so that was a project that I, I finished uh, about 10 years ago. And then I did another project where I went with a friend and we were learning languages. So we went to four different countries, Spain, Brazil, China, and Korea. And the kind of crux of that project is when we'd land in each country, we would try as much as possible to only speak in the language you're trying to learn. So only speak Spanish in Spain or only speak Mandarin in China and try to learn as much as possible. And these were also, uh, I would say, fairly successful projects. And so this book was kind of not only talking about some of the projects that I've done, but also many of the fascinating and interesting people that most people have never heard of before and some of the projects that they've done and try to present these as examples and see, you know, if you wanted to learn something difficult and you wanted to learn it on your own or you wanted to take an existing curriculum and try to find ways that you might be able to optimize it. Uh, this is the kind of thinking that I wanted to try to explain in the book. What's the angle of the first couple of chapters? The main thrust of the book is like, what would be a an effective way to approach these kind of projects? And so I, I sort of divide up the book into these nine different principles that you can apply that are generally true. They're not you know, something that you're going to be, okay, do this exact thing, but it's a general principle that if you apply it, you can work on it. So, you know, a big thing is, is meta learning or what I call like learning how a particular skill or subject breaks down. So if you're going to learn a new language, then you have to kind of break it down into vocabulary and grammar and pronunciation and understand, okay, what are the good ways to practice each of those things? And so if you can get your head wrapped around like, well, how does someone get really good at jujitsu or piano or uh, business or one of these skills, then you can start to sort of dissect it and figure out, okay, what would be a good way to learn this? What would be a good way to kind of get up to speed with whatever it is you're trying to uh, acquire or get good at. Talking about language, did you look at tone? I mean, could you relate tone to multiple languages? Like if there's a, a few words and all the words were the same thing. Yeah. Right. And you said them in, in different languages. Would each of those languages have a similar tone? You mean like, like intonation, like in how you, uh, well, tone is kind of how you, what you attract, you know, like if a mm. person like you're, you're, you have a tone, so you probably <laughs> hang around. Mm, people okay. that have a very similar tone. If you took five different languages and it was one sentence and they all had the same meaning. Yeah. If one person read those words in all those different languages, is the tone the same? Yeah. I mean, there's this really interesting kind of question about how much language is tied up with like what you were talking about, which is sort of what you mean or what you intend and how much of it is culturally specific. So there's a certain sense like what gets lost when you translate things. And I do think there's a sense that you are a little bit of a different person when you're speaking into a different language. Some of that's just maybe partly based on uh, what your ability to articulate things is. 
So, you know, if you're speaking in a language that makes it hard to convey maybe certain abstract ideas, either because you lack the vocabulary or because the language itself is maybe doesn't have as many of those concepts, then, you know, you're going to be a little bit of a different person. And then some of it is also, I think, a lot of what you're doing when you're learning a language is learning how to kind of imitate other people when they're speaking. And so you pick up these little mannerisms and stuff, just a little bit like if, you know, if you were consciously like you were abroad and you were in Australia or, or England and you were like constant trying to pick up mannerisms of the accent of how people are speaking there. I mean, a lot of people who already speak English consciously don't try to do this. But if you were doing this, you might also pick up other things that are not just explicitly related to the language. So you'd pick up, you know, other people's habits and the way they think about things and some beliefs and stuff. And so I think one of the, you know, real nice things about learning a language is it does kind of let you explore other parts of your personality and other parts of how you might think about things because, you know, there is a sense that you do get a little bit of a break, I think, from from who you are. Um, but as you said, I think that there is a certain core probably of your meaning and your intentions that are probably transcends language. That's not just, you know, uh, I'm a completely different person if I'm speaking in Spanish. Like, you know, if you're giving this speech in Spanish, I'd try to find words that matched. And uh, You know, I think environment is a big deal. And people don't really factor in environment. I mean, I think when you're born, you know, you come to the table with certain traits, certain lineage and whatever environment you're placed in, you know, that functionality of that environment is going to push you different directions based on who you are and what your lineage is and so forth. Do you think that if nobody knew any languages and you had Mm -hmm. five different bloodlines brought into the same environment? and you had five different languages, would there be a law of attraction in that environment? to to a certain language you know it's funny it's funny you talk about that because there's actually research that talks about this which is these environments where you have a lot of uh, immigrant communities that have been brought together that don't have a language in common and one of the findings is that um, adults if so if you if you bring people together at a certain age when they you know have already usually the boundary is kind of around puberty but you're older than this then what tends to develop is called a pigeon, which is where people use the language, but it's in a little bit of a crude form. Like there's, you know, it doesn't have a really complicated vocabulary. It's just that kind of the way that, you know, if you were in an environment and you had to speak a totally foreign language, you're maybe not going to speak with native fluency. But the children of these of these people who grow up in this environment where there really isn't actually a dominant language, the way that, you know, if you were growing up in a, an English speaking country, you're surrounded by native English speakers, you're surrounded by people who speak, you know, weird hodgepodge of languages, um, that it creates a Creole and a Creole is like a fully formed language that has a complicated grammar. So it seems like we are equipped mentally, at least at a young age to invent language if we don't have one, as long as we have the ability to communicate, it's like the attraction point of what you're talking about is that even if the raw material is just this kind of simplified pigeon of a language that isn't really complicated, children were like, will elaborate on it and create more complicated grammatical rules and things that, you know, linguists would study and say, oh, yeah, that's a full language that has all these complicated features. And so there's something language, at least at least at that age is something that we are kind of innately driven to not only imitate, but also to generate to something that, you know, even if our environment doesn't give us the all the raw materials, we will kind of spontaneously create some of that. So maybe we're just a lazy society. (laughs) You, You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, Because you say that, too. I was in New York City for 12 and a half years outside the city in New Jersey, but moved back to Charleston. I went to college in Charleston, and and I've talked to a couple people that have this language called Gullah. Okay. And Gullah was this language that was on the outer 
you know, coast, islands, whatever, that some of the the imprisoned people, mm-hmm. I'll say, or slaves, whatever, rice growers, whatever you will, because of survival and they were pushed to a limit, they created this Gala language. So the people that had them captive couldn't understand what they were saying. And you think about society today, you know, we're probably more capable of understanding more languages if we're pushed to do it. Do you think that's, yeah. Well, what do you think I about mean, that? I mean, I think one thing, cause there's it's like, you know, and I, I gave some support for that. There is some evidence that like, if you get little kids and you give them an environment that children have some abilities to learn languages that adults lack, but adults also have a lot of things that children don't have. I mean, children are not usually as cognitively sophisticated. So if you explain like, this is what a verb is, and this is like, you know, uh, adjective noun agreement in gender, like these are concepts that a three-year-old can't understand. Even if you give them enough examples, they'll pick it up on their own. And the, the thing that I think is sort of interesting from that is that you can really learn a lot of languages, but as an adult, you're very rarely in a situation where you have enough exposure over a long enough period of time to really match the way that children learn a language. And so, you know, when the average person says, oh, you know, I took Spanish for like two or three years in in college and, you know, I can't speak anything, you know, maybe they're admitting a, a an all too depressing fact that happens for many people. But it's also the case that maybe they were spending like an hour or two a week where they're sitting and doing a few grammar drills, whereas like a, you know, typical immersive experience for someone who's in another country is maybe they're spending like eight to 10 hours a day, just constantly listening, constantly listening, constantly listening. And so, I mean, this was a big part of this project that we did where we, you know, the, the theory at least was that, well, if you were kind of forced in a sort of an immersive context for a large period of time, not that that would be the only thing that would be important for learning the language, but it would serve as a real catalyzing agent so that if you are, okay, I have to speak in Spanish, then not only do you have to engage with people in Spanish and you have to listen to Spanish, but you're kind of forced to learn a lot more than you would if, you know, you're taking the half an hour a week Spanish lesson. And it could become from focus because when, and I say this a lot, you know, mm-hmm. when, when I talk about science, one lane highway, when you identify your subconscious and you identify your unconscious bias, to consciousness. And when you, you know, they identify those things separately, but when you think about that and you think about, you know, we're brought into this world and, you know, we bring a lineage, we bring something to the table that points us in some type of direction, but you know, you're start as you're dialing in information and you're being programmed, uh, you know, and then you get to a certain point in life, you start based on that programming. You Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today start responding to things with your unconscious bias and 
however heavy that programming is, it makes it harder for people to get to consciousness. You know, if you did a study of where is that cutoff, you know, where's that focus? Mm. Like, where does that unconscious bias start to really come in heavy and then backtrack that? You know, is there age? Is there a trigger? Is there something um, maybe we could understand as human beings that could open our minds a little more to take on a task to learn a language as we get older? I wonder if there's ever been a study like that. Yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, well, I mean, part of what we're talking about here is just also this idea that like, you know, I don't, I definitely don't think we come into the world as uh, blank slates, but you know, human beings are considerably like culturally plastic. Like I'm speaking to you in English right now because I grew up and I'm speaking in English. But if I had grown up in China or India, I would presumably speak Mandarin or Hindi uh, the same way I'm speaking English right now. So that's not something that you know, is just in my hardwiring to come out speaking English. And presumably that's true of a lot more than just language. That's also, you know, our culture and like, like places study things like how comfortable the distance is between you and another person. And presumably some of that is easier to learn when you're younger. I think we all understand that, you know, if you take someone and they grow up in a different country, they have many of the cultural attitudes, beliefs, not just the language that are of their adopted country. But if you come when you're much older, you tend to retain a lot more of, you know, what things were like when you were growing up. So some of that is probably just a learning mechanism that we, you know, when we're young, we have these kind of implicit learning mechanisms to be like, what is the culture of what I'm surrounding and absorb that when you're older, it's sort of to be a little bit more, don't let go of that, like hold on to that a little bit. But I think also some of that is environment. I think some of that is just that you get in this cycle, like we were talking about where, you know, if you are a fluent English speaker, it's always easier for you to use English. And so it's hard to find environments where you actually have to speak another language and you would persist in them for long periods of time. Because if you were to travel abroad, the easiest thing for you to do would be to find the people who speak English and to kind of persist in that sort of state. So I think that itself becomes one of the things that keeps people from learning, keeps people from changing who they are is because they get into these sort of like these attractor situations where there's like, okay, you're this kind of person and you sort of sort of gently drift back to this sort of basin of, of whomever you are. And, you know, as a kid, there is no basin. So you can kind of shift into that as you get older, it gets a bit deeper. And so it's harder to find experiences that will push you out and get you to learn a new language or learn a new skill or, you know, retool for a new job or, or even just deeper things like your, your fundamental beliefs about life. Here's a kind of a deeper one. When you look at foundational language, how do you think these sounds were created based on your environment? You mean like uh, the sounds of like the, duh, like that kind of sound? Or what do you mean? Well, no, by- just like, you know, when I say the word the or you mm-hmm. or me, yeah. that's a sound. Yeah. You know? and, and I wonder how environment made different cultures create different sounds, you know, yeah. because... The language was the language was not the language until the language was created. Yeah. No, I think about that. I think I think that's very interesting. Like I think again, you know, uh I forget, I'm 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 mixing up my historical reference, but there was like this pretty famous linguist who made the big point that, you know, that these signs, these like sounds we make are entirely arbitrary. Now that's not entirely true. There's, you know, the famous, I think it was like Kiki and Momo maybe. And they do like show people this and people like to associate Kiki with like sharp things and Momo with like kind of round things. So there does seem to be some sense that some of the words we use have some association. And obviously, you know, you call a chickadee a chickadee because it makes a chickadee sound. So there's certain amount of like words that just have a direct kind of relationship with things. But a lot of 
this stuff is arbitrary. Like, you know, it's certainly not the case that uh, most words are the same. They're completely different from each other, even if they refer to the same concept. So there's a certain arbitrariness in language. And yeah, I mean, I do think that probably some of that is just that if you were in an environment like again, going to this kind of creolized environment where you know maybe you're in an environment where you don't have a lot of input, but you have access to other people to communicate with. So I know there's examples where, uh, let's say, deaf children who are not exposed to sign language when they're really young or or even, um, you know, people who have other communicative barriers. I know uh, when I was growing up, there was a uh, twins that were sort of profoundly autistic and they had trouble learning English, but they kind of communicated to each other in sort of their own language. And I think that can come about because, you know, you start using some sound and then it just gets associated with something. And then that again becomes a stabilized as a word. And then that gets held up over long periods of time because you pass it down to other people and that's where these words come about. So I don't know, that would be my guess is how, how those kinds of things. Well, I think, I think you answered it through that when you yeah. said association, mm -hmm. I think that's a good little way to kind of isolate that. Um, because if you have a sound, mm -hmm. it's associated with something in their culture yeah. and you perpetuate that association probably created that narrative. Yeah. I mean, well, you can even think about like how a, a better example is maybe like a written language, right? Where, um, you know, at the beginning, it was all kind of hieroglyphs, like you're drawing little pictures of things. And then they become through time increasingly abstract so that you're no longer trying to draw an actual picture, you're trying to draw the symbol that everyone already knows. And then they, over time, just lose their association. Like I believe the letter A, uh, you know, which we think of it was originally in the Phoenician alphabet, uh, like a picture of an ox head, because the word for ox started with that sound. And so like that, that association totally lost. Nobody thinks about that now. But you know, that's how it came about at least so it's possible at least that maybe some of these sounds were kind of you know that that's someone says something because it's it seems like the best idea for communicating their intention and then it just morphs and warps and words borrow sounds because they're similar to something else and you know that's just how it grows nice and, and i see you you've done a tedx yeah well i've given two uh tedx talks so one was about this mit challenge project learning computer science and the other one was about learning languages that i did uh and these were done, I think, almost yeah, about 10 years ago now. So if you look at it, you'll, you'll see if you're watching me now, you'll see it then. You'll see a considerably younger a little bit face. Of a, <laughs> a little bit yeah. of a difference. Yeah, a little, little bit more hair, maybe a little less gray. Yeah. What else? What else was anything else interesting that it's like we broke breaking down languages? What yeah. else did you kind of break down and put in this book together? Well, I mean, one of the big things is like, what's the right way to study? Because we spend so much of our life in educational institutions, but we never really get a course where it's like, okay, this is how to study for things. And that would be fine if the default way that most people studied was like pretty close to the best way to study, but it's not, it's not actually the best way to study. There's lots of things that students have systematic misconceptions about. So for instance, the most popular way to study is cramming right before a test, which is actually one of the worst ways you can study if you want to learn something over, over an interval that's longer than a very short period of time. And similarly, a lot of students like to reread things. So, you know, you, you go take the class, you take some notes, and then what do you do when you have to go to the exam? You reread your notes and you look them over and over again. And it turns out this is not the most effective use of time that you'll be far better off actually just keeping the book closed and trying to remember what was in the book. And even better is if you can do practice tests or do some kind of practice questions like flashcards where you can get some feedback if you get the wrong answer. And these almost always outperform uh, rereading and these studying things. So some people have effective ways of studying and some people uh, don't. And it seems like very hit or miss whether people stumble upon these techniques. And so, 
you know, I'm talking about academic subjects here, but this obviously has a big impact for learning too, because, you know, if you're listening to a podcast or if you're reading a book or you're reading a newspaper article and you want to retain it or you want to apply it, it helps to understand some of these principles, even if it's not, you know, for a final exam for a, you know, AP history class or something. I mean, that's a big deal. And I think, mm -hmm. think that you see that playing out in society. And I've talked to a lot of people about education because when you, it's funny you said, when you read something, mm -hmm. because most people, most students are just trying to hit a number. Mm -hmm. And when you, and they try to memorize what they read, they go in, they take the test, they walk out. The only problem is they hit their number. They don't relish that information with that process. So it kind of plays out in society, not relishing that information or learning that information because you're just trying to hit a number. But saying that if you keep the book closed and try to memorize that, wonder if you're triggering, do you think you relish more by doing that and you well, retain more? I think, I think one of the points that has come up from this research is this, that the act of trying to recall something um, for a test, let's say, is is particularly beneficial for remembering it. So we tend to think of tests in a what what psychologists would call like a, a summative uh, viewpoint. So the idea being that like the point of the test is to see how much you know. But we don't think about it in terms of the point of the test is to teach you the subject. That's kind of not the way we think about things. But because of this sort of effect is that actually once you've been exposed to some information, um, at least once, you know, you've, you've encountered before, it's often more beneficial to be tested on it than to be shown it again. And so it is important, you know, you have to like, someone has to give you the information in the first place, you probably have to read a book or watch a lecture or something like that in order to at least get the idea in your head at some point. But a major difficulty we have is getting the information out of your head. You know, so much of what we learn in school is inert. Like you just, you learn all these facts and figures and then 10 years go by and you can't remember any of it. And it's sort of like, well, what was the point of doing all those years of schooling if you can't remember any of it or apply any of it? But a lot of that is just that we don't practice it enough. We don't practice bringing it out of our head. So you, you learn something, you heard about some concept, but you don't get many opportunities to apply it or bring it out in a particular testing context. And that's a huge part of building these skills, you know? And so, you know, it, it, another way of thinking about it is, you know, we would think it would be ridiculous if you were trying to learn to ride a bicycle or play baseball just by watching someone do it. You know, maybe that's important for just understanding the technique, but you clearly have to practice it. But when it comes to conceptual knowledge or factual knowledge, we kind of often have a different picture that, well, it's mostly important just to watch someone and not to actually, <laughs> not to actually practice it ourselves. When you think about listening or or keep the book closed or whatever, I mean, you kind of learn life by watching other people, right? You really can't be, you're really not taught what people are like in life in a textbook. Yeah. So I think there's something linear there that that makes sense. If, if, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, so much of what we learn is through observation um, and through following people. The The point about retrieval is just that um, if you're if you want a skill to kind of be your own or something that you can practice, then uh, watching someone and then practicing it again, like to use the bicycle example, you probably have to watch someone show, OK, this is how they do it. If you've never seen a bicycle before, it'd be very hard to figure out. But uh, you watch someone and then you practice it and you figure it out yourself. And so I think that kind of interplay is very important um, for learning skills. And, and this is particularly true in academic classes where a lot of what you're doing is, you know, you read something and then it's, okay, what do you do with this, right? So the practice, yeah. I think, is often neglected in that context. Well, when you think about foods, mm -hmm. you know, the, the deal with colors and foods and how people, you know, whenever they started eating something, they would see 
what animals ate and, and they would make sure the animal didn't die and they would go <laughs> eat yeah. the same thing. Kind of a similar grassroots process. I mean, there's this really interesting stuff about how, you know, cultures develop, you know, speaking about food, like develop these kind of like beliefs about food prohibitions and stuff. So um, I, I'm not I may I may get a detail wrong here, but I, as I understand it, I think one of the kind of human universals is that people are very picky about meat, like what meats you can eat, and what meats you can't eat. And it's not that like there's just some meats that are bad for people and some that are good for people, but just like your culture kind of divides the diet and like we don't, we don't eat lizards or we don't eat fish or we eat this and we don't eat that. And it seems to be fairly like durable, like when you're young, if you don't see people eat something, you don't eat it. And that's probably like, you know, in our hardwiring that, well, lots of things can kill you if you don't eat it properly so you just you observe okay what are the things that people in my culture seem to eat and they don't die from and then that gets imprinted on you of like this is food and like you know that would be gross to eat even though it's it's kind of arbitrary but it's it follows this sort of principle of like you know what you said of watching the animal eat something and then if it's uh if they, they drop dead after you don't want to eat it well you don't want to have a, too much trial and error there because you're you're not going to make it to adulthood if you're eating things that have a 50 percent chance of causing you to die after right and it, and it looks like you've had a lot of success with your books is is there a process that you've done that has uh made your book successful i don't know i mean i'm very grateful that uh, people like the books i think the thing that has maybe made the biggest impact if, if anyone is looking to become a writer author is just having such a long history of writing online of sharing ideas of producing stuff means that you know if, if for some reason you liked kind of what i was putting out there then you get kind of drawn into that orbit and then when you have a book it's easier to be like okay here's my book i think the thing a lot of people who are struggling to publish a book what they struggle with is that you know if no one's heard of you before you could have the best book in the world and it's very difficult to market it because uh you know it unless you are the Harvard expert on such and such or the CEO of, of whatever, it's, it's difficult to get people to even hear about what you're doing. I mean, I think in some way I'm probably here talking to you because you or one of your associates found the book somewhere. And then that's how we're having this conversation. Well, I mean, I definitely think you're intellectual. And I, the reason I ask <laughs> that, because I think what I see on social media and the things I talk about, it's almost like the majority of the people have been dumbed down somewhat. And it's it's almost like they don't want to be educated highly. Mm. And I'm like, where does that come from? Yeah, you know, it's like that, you know, it's like what you're talking about. There's yeah. a lot of, there's a, you would think that we would move to the other side, you know, like if, if, if you really want to be somebody, you really want to learn something, these, these are the 10 books and these are the 10 people yeah. you need to listen to. To my point, I think it's, um, to make book like you're successful, you, you have to have the right angle because the market is somewhat probably limited. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, well, it's interesting to, to think about because, you know, as you're saying, uh, you know, if you just take a random perusal on like YouTube or TikTok or these kind of things. You're not always going to get someone giving you, you know, it's often going to be just some sort of simple video that just causes you to laugh. It's not going to be something that causes you to think deeply. And I think part of that is, you know, there's a bit of a catch 22 with, you know, with what you were talking about of becoming deeply educated that you kind of can't see what's out there until you start learning more. So as you learn more about a topic, this sort of the gaps start to fill in as well. So it's not as if kind of our landscape of the world is this sort of like big black, blank 
map that you know you see what you know and then there's just like uncharted territory and then it's like okay let's go off and explore it's the the map itself grows bigger as you learn more so this is a real kind of paradoxical property i think of learning things that you become more curious about something the more you know because while you're expanding the kind of i know this i know that or i've had this experience i've had that experience but you also expand all the questions you have that are unanswered and so i think that's one of the the things that if you know take some topic that you don't know very much about, you're usually also not that curious about it because you don't even know questions to ask about it. So, I mean, there's topics that I don't know very much about and I'm sure I could become curious if I learn more, but, you know, just offhand, I don't have anything that I want to ask about that. And so I think that bootstrapping that curiosity process of getting really interested in something, learning about it, learning a little bit, and then learning why those things that you first learned were wrong. And like this kind of process, I think, is just uh, the evolution of, of trying to educate yourself. So if we wanted to find ultra learning mm-hmm. the book where do we where do we go to find the book yeah i mean you can find it on amazon barnes and noble wherever you get your books uh, there's also an audible version so if you're not sick of listening to me now you can uh, listen to me narrate the book too well i think you have some great points and there's always uh, that's why i like talking to people like you because there's always different processes that I learn myself, you know, that I can plug in to different parts of life that kind of can line up with other thought processes, kind of to the point of what you said. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you coming on the show and, and we got this thing done, even though we had a little technical difficulty (laughs) to start. And I think we talked solid for 40 minutes. Yeah, no, it was great. It was, I always like chatting with people and, you know, it's just, it's such a privilege to be able to share the things that you're passionate about with other people. Nice. So this is Scott H. Young. Check out his book, Ultra Learning. And my name is John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.